0: This show is all about the people behind the science of biotechnology and medical devices. Through the stories of the people, I hope that Lab Rats to Unicorns is able to describe the transformative process of you know how an idea starts in the lab and eventually becomes a life-saving treatment or a product that that helps patients with diseases. Life 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 life-saving. So this episode, taped in front of a live audience in Atlanta, features a conversation about how one medical school gives wings to the type of discovery and innovation that is challenging the status quo in medical breakthroughs and impacting patient outcomes by embracing and affirming diverse talent. Microbiologist and immunologist James Lillard is the Senior Associate Dean of Research, Innovation, and Commercialization at Morehouse School of Medicine, one of Atlanta's top research institutions. This freestanding community-based medical school is one of only four historically black medical schools with enrollment of nearly 1,000 graduate students in medicine, public health, and biomedical sciences, along with health informatics, and boasts the number one ranked online MS and biotechnology program in the U.S. It's got a mission that includes increasing the diversity of the health professional and scientific workforce, and it attracts, educates, and trains, as well as fosters biomedical and healthcare talent. Dr. Lillard is a distinguished fellow of AAI and a fellow of NAI and AAAS that uses both in silico and in vivo methods to develop biologics or molecular tests to better treat or diagnose respectively chronic diseases. His research involves dissecting the molecular mechanisms of cancer and inflammatory diseases using clinically annotated NGS data and the implementation of precision medicine. His research contributions span disciplines including oncology, immunity, inflammation, and biodefense. And his cumulative peer reviewed funding, principally directed over his scientific career, exceeds, and you heard this right, $75 million. And he has authored over 300 300 scientific communications, which have been cited over 10,000 times. So, welcome to the podcast.
1: Wow, thank you. I I didn't recognize, I I almost, who's who's he talking (laughs) about?
0: (laughs) <laughs> no, we're delighted to have you um, in the conversation today, uh, James, and maybe we can get started if, if it would be okay, just to level set for the audience. It always helps to kind of uh, understand where you're starting from. Maybe you could just describe the role that you're in right now and a little bit about what you're focused on in that role.
1: Right. Um, so good. Thanks. Thanks again for having me. Um, you know, so at Morehouse School of Medicine, we have to wear a lot of hats, uh, freestanding medical school relatively small faculty size, small campus footprint. But um, historically we've been focused on addressing health disparities and to increase health equity um, in, in many of the communities we serve. Uh, so in that role, you know, I do everything from um, uh, mentor students, you know, in, in my laboratory, helping them with their complete their dissertation. And in my administrative role, I uh, manage our tech transfer office, actually established it some fifteen years ago, hmm. um, and that's everything from uh, fielding invention disclosures, uh, managing that process, working with inventors and innovators to uh, help uh mature, develop their discoveries to hopefully what might be patented, copyrighted, trademarked, et etc. Um, We also do a lot of work um, identifying companies we hope that would be a good partner, uh, resting home for the technology that could take it forward. Um, We we also have been successful uh, with a few startups, um, 13 and counting. Mm -hmm. Um, Some are doing very well. Some are deceased. Some of the walking dead, right? As, <laughs> as, you, as you can imagine. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, we, we've had some That's success. Successful portfolio. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Fortunately, unfortunately. Um, but, you know, everything from uh, addressing therapeutic areas, from neuroscience to oncology, uh, devices, apps, and much more.
0: And so when you think about the role that you're in, and, um, you know, in, in my introduction, talked a little bit about, you know, your impact on science. Um, maybe you could step back in time and maybe begin the journey with us. You know, what got you interested in science in the first place? Was there a North Star? Was there an individual, uh, an event that caused you at some point to say, I want to go down that pathway? Um, or, you know, what, what was the route?
1: Right, so, uh, I, you know, so I grew up in, in Lexington, Kentucky and my dad was an engineer, mother was a social worker. Um, you know, I wasn't. I was okay in sports and tennis and things like that. You know, Kentucky was a basketball state, right? So I wasn't tall enough. For my basketball. wife's from Louisville too. So, really? Okay. Yeah. yeah. yeah so you, you understand? Um, but I, I was always uh, good at good in math and science. Uh, so I, I kind of had that as my north star. Um, I remember. If we go way back, you take me way back, John. The, you know, as I think back, I I I landed an internship at the University of Kentucky when I was in high school. Actually, before that, my mom got me a job in the medical school library. Wow! So I was fourteen. Yeah. Really young. So I I could, you know, it was was like heaven for me. I could read different articles and talk to students. Some some faculty I would enter you know, bump into um but you know that summer following i think i I got an internship in uh, a laboratory anatomy lab uh it actually was in neuroscience Mm -hmm. bruce mailey i'm not sure if he's still there probably Mm -hmm. not Mm -hmm. but uh that kind of got me started and you know and that research bug bit me then you know i knew i would be doing something like that but you know uh, at that time, you know, I, I think I either wanted to major in physics in college or biology, but I, you know, there weren't many scholarships in biology. Couldn't get a scholarship in physics, so I leaned on my math and science acumen. So I, you know, majored in doubly in computer science, hmm. which actually I'm starting to finally use again today.
0: Isn't that interesting? Yes. Yeah. The convergence. Yeah. That part yeah. of your brain is now being reactivated yeah. with <laughs> what's going on in that's precision medicine, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's cool. So so you liked being in the lab then? Yes.
1: Yeah. I, I, I quite enjoyed
0: it. Yeah. And so what were some of the things, you know, along that pathway that maybe influenced um, you know, present day and the way you're thinking about um each and every element of the role that you're in. You mentioned mentoring students, you know, establishing and supporting the next generation of, of leaders, obviously a very, very important uh, contribution and impact. But then you also talked a little bit about, you know, trying to get some of the technology out of the university in the hands of, you know, either other companies or, or startups. Were there any things in your experience along your pathway um, you know, and in, in over time, even your own entrepreneurial pursuits that have guided you toward, you know, what would be um, the the optimal environment to be able to, you know, kind of increase the, the translation? Okay, that, that's
1: uh, a lot to unpack there. But, but you know, as I think, trying to reflect back, I think men- mentors have been very important in my development as a scientist um, in this tech transfer space. Um from high school through college. Um, and then I learned a lot of lessons, uh, back in Kentucky, um, where I, you know, after finishing my double E and, background, uh, bachelor's degree, came back, worked for IBM, um, as a production engineer, I was a terrible engineer, <laughs> it was, uh, so on one hand it, it was, uh, you know, I was making, uh, imagine making laser printers and keyboards and typewriters. Um, but I got a chance to see, uh, you know, something that might happen in a, in a, a, a double E lab or computer science lab and what we had to do to develop it, to get it ready for the market. And those, some of those experiences never left me, kind of haunted me, mm-hmm. especially when I decided to go back and get my PhD in microbiology and immunology mm-hmm. and just seeing that, that, um, the importance of how how you have to translate, uh, and what goes into turning a what could be a great idea, finding a niche for it in the market, and then, you know, working day and night to implement or develop and then implement the technology. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, it sure does. And that it's such an arduous process. And I think um, would you say one thing I've noticed too is oftentimes in working, you know with universities, um, there can be great science, there can be innovative breakthroughs that move the field of science forward, but not all of those ideas are necessarily translatable, but some are actually, if you make the right moves, could be translatable. Have you noticed that as well? And, And one thing that I've seen maybe help or aid in that process is kind of getting market eyes in earlier so that you can get some feedback to say, well, you thought you were gonna go down this yep. particular pathway, but have you thought about moving down that pathway? What have, what have you found in that sense?
1: Yeah, yeah, less hard, hard lessons learned actually. Um, you know, I, I went through this uh, I-Corps program, mm-hmm. Innovation Corps, uh, like Marine Corps, <laughs> C-O-R-P-S, um, that I guess was initially developed out in Stanford uh, Steve, was it Steve? Steve Blank. Steve yeah. Blank. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, you know, through this whole, this whole customer discovery, um, you know, uh, nerd, I guess it became uh, NSF did a lot to support it and NIH picked it up. Um, but, you know, we you know, read, uh, went through that program personally just to see what it was all about. And I learned so many lessons about how to, you uh, determine whether or not this discovery that may get you a nature paper um, may or may not have a place in the market, or it may have a place in some future market, right? And uh, that whole process of uh, conducting interviews set around a hypothesis, a business premise that you're trying to test to identify uh, the best value or the most value in a particular technology was really eye-opening to me. so much so, I, I kind of make our inventors go through a mini I-Corps uh, boot camp. That, That's that, outstanding. Yeah, yeah. The, to kind of find the best. It helps me too as a tech transfer uh, officer to kind of really get a better understanding of what of the potential of their uh, discovery might have.
0: Yeah, because being in that position, um, you're going to have you know quite a bit of you know, domain ex- expertise in a given area, but no one person can really fully sure. <laughs> have the full gamut of deep knowledge needed around a certain technology. So having and exposing that innovator to the process of how they on their own can start to figure out, you know, and get really expert advice early on in the process, oftentimes can either, you know, set the stage for um, if, if, my my uh, observations have been if they haven't gone through a process like that. Um, they do end up either deceased or in the walking dead category. Yeah, exactly. Oftentimes walking dead, and it's even worse than being dead because oh they just kind of wander around because no one wants to fund the technology because yeah. they they, they kind of were blinded to and weren't really aware of what their options yeah. could be and, and maybe optimized just by some early eyes on that. That does seem to be a really important you know differentiator for, and there's no guarantee, of course, of success, but you increase the odds if you have a better sense of, you know, where you're ultimately aiming to, because, you know, especially in biotechnology, commercialization, it's a really long and expensive process. So you need a lot of people to believe in the technology. So kind of starting early with that advice can make a big difference.
1: Absolutely. Um, you know, you, you reminded me of uh, one of my colleagues that's not, no longer with us now, Gail Newman. She's uh, she was a microbiologist as well, an immunologist. Um and i I used to tease her. she had this uh, uh, interest in renal diseases, and you know she was she would study different proteins that would be excreted in urine you know we we patented some of her uh, discoveries of technologies you know ten years nothing no no interest uh, it was really amazing uh, but it was an example she had a lot of foresight and actually identified a niche that you know i, I used to tease her about and it actually um i guess oh eight years after filing the patent and her, her arduous work of developing these different tools and technologies we we managed to license the uh tech to uh chinook therapeutics okay yeah and it was actually found an alternative use for uh the huh. um
0: endothelin
1: antagonist. interesting that she detected in urine yeah. from HIV-associated nephropathy patients. Wow. Okay. Um, very, you know, somewhat rare, but it turns out that same protein was also present in uh, many uh, primary uh, individuals with primary kidney diseases. So much bigger niche. Uh, the FDA approved was already drug was already available. Sure. Um, and this company had the foresight to go down that path. Partner with us yeah. in just this summer, I guess they were acquired by Novartis for three and a half billion dollars. Not bad. You know, and, <laughs> and I did I did not expect that 10 years ago when yeah. we first started down that path. Right. Or th- even three years ago when we licensed the technology
0: out to the, but. That's an amazing story. And mm-hmm. you, you, so, and one of the challenges is kind of um, being able to kind of repeat that success. Um, right. And, you know, one trend we've noticed is, you know, over the last decade, you know, a lot of universities are starting to try to make it a more attractive place to be to invite um, individuals um, like like your colleague, you know, that had the success that she had um, and try to have a few more folks like that around that, you know, are both interested and capable of that type of translation. How have you seen uh, Morehouse's uh, tech transfer Uh, process or outlook um, evolve since, you know, the beginning when you got it off the ground and and got it started to to present day? Has that changed at all? Um,
1: It it has. But what's what I will say, you know, it's been consistently, I've been very extremely fortunate to have uh, support and and continuous uh, leadership support for what we're trying to do. When, again, we're not the largest uh, medical school, very small freestanding medical school. 10 times less the size of an Emory, uh, Emory's Medical School, as an example. But nonetheless, we've had some success stories like that because we've had a clear vision, clear focus, thank you, um, clear focus on addressing some of those unmet med- uh, medical needs in underrepresented populations, which now is at the forefront of many efforts now by... Uh, Big farm, in particular.
0: Right? Yeah, very interesting. And yeah. maybe can you talk a little bit more about some of those efforts and the importance of you know diverse populations, whether it be you know solving important problems that affect certain populations more so than others, clinical trials, kind of all all of the above. Those are very yeah. important yeah. topics right now. Maybe you could just expound right. on right. your, your uh, role. Or I'm sorry, Morehouse's role in that process. Yeah.
1: So, so the um, let me let me think. So, so, you know, I think largely driven by it's been, been accelerated by a number of things that have occurred recently in the country's history from um, you know, the horrible events around George Floyd prompted Black Lives Matter, uh, what we saw with <clears throat> the higher disproportionate incident and mortality rates associated with COVID in black and brown communities. Um and perhaps most recently with uh, not only FDA guidance, but uh, mandates that absolutely require that uh, clinical trials must have equitable or we must strive for clinical trial diversity. If there are 13% of uh, black people in America, then 13% of the participants in a clinical trial have to be black. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of... um, a lot of our interest has always been in that in that sweet spot, uh, and has been neglected by a number of companies, where you know you, you'll see many clinical trials only have you know, less than three uh, percent African Americans in, uh, in their study population. So um, I think, as a result, um, we're 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 doing a lot in the area of precision medicine and genomics, in particular.
0: And can you break down for a, the, our general audience what you mean by precision medicine? Right.
1: So precision medicine takes into, into account a number of things. Not only your uh, genomics, you know, your genes, your your blueprint, but the lipids you might produce and proteins that you might be expressed in your in your blood, uh, the environment you live in, your lifestyle, your hobbies, um, and and many many other things. Uh, you know, your your the your clinical history, you know, the natural history of, you know, how you may have, uh, you know, whether it's hypertension or some something extreme like cancer, mm-hmm. uh, trying to make sense of all of that. And it's really, again, like the convergence of biomedicine and uh, uh, data science. And it's really, ex- it's a real exciting time. Mm-hmm. Now, it's been around for a long time. Many of us. If you really sit back and think about it, um, precision medicines, uh, oh, over a hundred years old. You know, it's, that's how we match. I mean, transplant uh, medicine, from uh, how we how we uh, donate blood mm-hmm. and, and, and you know, blood typing is essentially a form of tr- uh, precision True. medicine, yeah. right? Some of the transplant, you know, kitty transplant might be needed. You know, you have to be typed for that to precisely. Identify the right tissue or organ that might one might be uh, available to. Yes. Genomics, on the other hand, or genomic medicine, is I think a subset of precision medicine that's really focused on those genetic differences that uh, only contribute to maybe thirty percent, only explain maybe thirty percent of disease. So the other seventy percent is everything else.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No. That, that's that. Thank you for that for that breakdown. And you know, getting back to um, some of your points that you you've made around uh, diversity and inclusion in clinical studies, can you expound on that a little bit further around what what can be done to make it, um, you know, to 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 invite diverse patient populations into clinical studies and create a safe environment for them to right. feel like they right. want to participate. Um, because I, I know that that can be and has been a, um, a challenge as well.
1: Yeah, you know, I, sh- I should point out that um, you know precision medicine is going to solve a lot of health problems. I think it's the future of medicine, but it won't be a reality for everyone unless more uh, participate in it. It's, it's currently a lot of the uh, research and discoveries made have have largely been focused on uh, European populations. And, and men. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so, you know, there's a, there's a lot to make up, a lot of ground to be made up, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and in terms of, uh, you know, our, our, our participation in clinical trials, you know, there, there are a number of uh, distrusts. And if you think about, you know, the opposite of trust is fear, right? Yeah. And, but those fears are quite real. Uh, America has a very unfortunate history. Um, from slavery to segregation to Jim, Jim Crow, and even recent events that we just saw in our last five years, so um, you know that, that, that it's the the reality of those fears is, is quite real. So you know a lot of times we we take a lot of efforts to address those fears head on, in, ho- in a hope to creating trust in in healthcare system and some of those clinical trials
0: yeah no that's that's very uh, interesting and well stated I, the to what degree you know we're, we're here in Atlanta Atlanta's a very you know um, diverse population. Um, there's really champions of diversity and inclusion, not, not just kind of being said but being practiced And to what extent does the Atlanta ecosystem from the biotech, healthcare, biopharma perspective, offer some leadership? And maybe when we think about different ecosystems and what makes them different and what makes them unique that draws other parts of the world to be there or collaborate in in Atlanta, is that a feature that you think um, offers um, an example and maybe a, a, a leadership um, in diversity and inclusion, whether yeah. it be in clinical trials or maybe it's even the way we build a startup and who, who uh, makes up the leadership team, who are the founding absolutely. scientists, who's on the board. Maybe just some comments around that as it relates to Atlanta's opportunity.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah, that, that's, that's, a, that's a great question. Um, you know, let's, let's first consider that, um, I don't know if the audience knows, but um, the state with the highest population of african-americans is georgia mm-hmm. you know by far second highest and we have the highest percentage as well 30 32 34 mm-hmm. percent um the second uh highest state you know i, I thought it was going to be new york or new jersey or, or illinois mm-hmm. but it's actually florida okay right huh. so there's a lot of interest in the south mm-hmm. which is happens to be a uh, chronic disease belt right uh some of the highest Mortality rates, whether it's cardiovascular disease, uh, neurology, uh, cancer, High, some of the highest rates for all these things just happen to be in the South. And we're, we happen to be at the center of this chronic disease belt. So just based on our geography and the history, uh, the demographics makes Georgia, and in particular Atlanta, almost the perfect place to embark on uh, whether it's a startup or even conducting research Mm -hmm. on some of these diseases that plague our population. Um, Not only, you know, with Morehouse School of Medicine's leadership and uh, presence in the Atlanta University Center Schools, which include uh, Spelman College, Morehouse College, Clark Atlanta University, even Atlanta Metro University, uh, and of course Morehouse School of Medicine. uh, You know, we produce, you know, I won't say the most, but certainly a f- significant number of uh, PhDs, uh, in this area, uh, in, in, in the bio, biotech, uh, biomedical engineering, and other, other spaces.
0: And maybe you could touch on, if you don't mind for the broader audience, um, talked about HBCUs and, um, a little bit about, um, you know, kind of the, the, the HBCUs you know, around he- here in Atlanta, but just, the importance of HBCUs across the country, right? Yeah,
1: the you know, HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities, um, actually produce the most uh, black scientists in terms of mm. degrees in in the country, mm. and most of that happens right here in in Atlanta. Yeah, which I'm I'm very proud of. Yeah,
0: when you think about then melding it all together, you know the opportunity for Atlanta, the work you're doing, you know at Morehouse. Um, and the burgeoning kind of interest level of um, younger faculty that are coming to Morehouse, maybe more inspired to start a company around their idea. What, what do you look at kind of the next decade uh, around the opportunity for both, you know, Morehouse right. and the impact, you know, on translation um, back to kind of the tech transfer, uh, you know, uh, mission. Uh, so impact on Translation through more startups um, and kind of the Atlanta biopharma scene in the next decade. Do, do you do you visualize kind of a kind of continuing to kind of move along at the current pace? Do you see opportunity for more um, acceleration in the ecosystem? Yeah, exactly.
1: I think there's going to be significant acceleration in discoveries, especially in, in the area of precision medicine. Um, m- many of the strategies employed to bring a, say, a uh, a therapy to the market um, can be accelerated through a focus on rare diseases. Um, And I think with the advent of precision medicine, many diseases will be determined to be uh, rare, quote unquote. You know, from, um, let's see, you know, we, we phenotype breast cancer, stage one through four, different grades of it. But Now, we now know there are actually 30 different plus, probably 40 different types of breast cancer. We're going to begin to endotype different diseases and drill drill more narrow and narrow until it's almost an N of one or one of one type of uh, approach to practicing medicine. And the fact that a lot of those, uh, because of our diversity here in Atlanta, a lot of those discoveries will, will take place, I feel, in, in some of the institutions here in Atlanta, Morehouse School of Medicine, mm-hmm. Emory, mm-hmm. Uh, Georgia Tech, and and, and the like.
0: Interesting insight. And p- part of your earlier comment is the inclusion of those patients in clinical studies That's today are imperative, right. so that the mapping that occurs has included you know that that part of the population that if they're not in the study, they're not they're going to be that precision won't be. You know, that won't be be able to pinpoint, you know, individuals yeah, or parts yeah. of populations if they're not being included in the clinical study.
1: Right. And there's another another interesting fact that if you take a step back, it's it's a little frightening. But a lot of um, a lot of the research we've been conducting in the genomic space, uh, space based on a human reference genome that has gaps in it. Um, it was largely uh, scaffold from. Europeans right mm-hmm. uh, people of European ancestry um, but there are there are a number of consortiums that are embarking on filling in the gaps uh telomere to telomere consortium you know has added I can't remember it's hundreds of thousands of base pairs that are encoding a thousand new genes yeah right? and uh, that that that's more uh, diverse there's a pan african genome mm. Um, that has uh, that essentially leverages the fact that Africa has the most genetic diversity. You know, the, the genetic diversity between someone from Senegal, someone in Nigeria is significantly more diverse hmm. than um, from, you know China to Europe. Let's say, yeah, I mean, it's really remarkable. Interesting. So we have to take that into consideration as we build that that platform, uh, if you will. Uh, as we scaffold the new new genomes, as we begin to get a better understanding of different diseases, uh, so that diversity is so important.
0: And I just uh, thought your um, vision around you know kind of the the end of one you know eventually in um, precision medicine in its pure, purest form. That's the hope. Yeah. Yeah, and and the kind of the um, the next step being an increase in focus around rare diseases. Um, can you talk a little bit about some interesting things um, that you're observing either in the field or at Morehouse that are kind of setting the stage for the future? I mean, you, you know the, a lot of the buzzwords, you know, CRISPR, gene editing, and cell therapy, CAR-T. What's your vision for, again, back in the context of going after rare disease and being more precise with the patient population? Um, are you seeing anything interesting on the therapeutic side that everybody should be paying attention to? Uh, let's see.
1: Uh, you know, I'm. Um, you mentioned uh, gene editing, um, and You know, the RNA delivery uh, was proven without shadow of doubt to work. Um, the last few years, right, with this pandemic, and you're going to see a number of uh, therapeutic approaches using that technology and gene editing. Um, I'm aware of some some companies that, let's say instead of taking a statin to treat your uh, high cholesterol you might get a, uh, or a dose of RNA hmm. so hmm. yeah yeah to, to help metabolize the cholesterol very interesting yeah yeah,
0: yeah new, di- new dynamics that, right, are, that are right right I
1: also think a lot of uh, cell cell-based therapies will be uh, become more in vogue um, and it needs a whole new cast of characters to study that. To design them, to manufacture them, right? Uh, I think uh, biomanufacturing—you uh, know—we have have a unique opportunity also in the state to make uh, some investments there.
0: Yeah, in, in so many ways, the traditional pharmaceutical model was built on large markets right. and you know the ability to kind of make one you know, size a, fits a drug, all drug and yeah. then yeah. distribute it, you know, in a mass production fashion, which allowed some efficiencies with how right. you could scale up a, <laughs> the manufacturing process to some degree. Whereas now when you think about smaller markets, I mean, N of one doesn't sound attractive to a pharmaceutical company because it's a lot harder to could be a lot harder to, right. you know, to achieve what they were achieving, you know, from the standpoint of the the old way of doing things. But that's rapidly changing. And well, also you know,
1: because, you know, I'm sorry to interrupt, but but, you know, that that whole N of one approach or rare disease approach, you know, when you when you combine some of the. uh, uh the benefits of precision medicine—able to identify a patient that's going to that's you know perfect for your therapy or device, right? Um, using that together is actually going to save the industry a whole ton of money, I believe. Yeah, and make, the- make it made a lot more efficient to take something
0: to market. Uh, no, agreed, and and I think that's why you know just even. Like cell-based therapies like you're right. talking about, it just transforms the whole commercialization model. I mean, it really is. You need to be near patients for cell therapy to be made more effective because you know the patient, in this case, you're not, you know, using, you know, chemical reactors and things like that to make small molecules exactly. at scale. You're using the patient and you're you know, drawing blood and you're, you're doing a a workup procedure and then you're, you know, reinserting blood with better properties, T cells and things like that, that, that have been very effective in things like leukemia. Right. I mean, so it's very promising. Now those processes at the moment tend to be more expensive because it's a, it's a process that's maybe a little more manual in nature. Um, but I just think you're going to see a lot of companies we're already seeing companies, you know, even at portal coming in to try to transform how do you make a cell therapy, you know, right. more efficiently and more cost effectively. Um, but I think that's, we're kind of in the middle of that transition where the science is still being kind of Worked out. developed, you yeah. know, cause some yeah. are working and some aren't There's safety issues in certain cases. And so, um, yeah, I, I, I do think it's a very interesting time to be um, both a, you know, an innovator yeah. uh, and an entrepreneur um, at this point in time when, I feel like we're just kind of getting going in, exactly. in, in the, you know, the so-called exactly. bio century. What are, uh, w- when you look at uh, some of the, you know, in, incoming classes and, you know, the th- kinds of things that are top of mind for some of the students coming into Morehouse, um, do you see th- uh, th- what, what you're feeling around um, their, their mindset toward uh, I- innovation and um, you know, leveraging science to create impact through innovation? Yeah, um,
1: they, you know, it's interesting. A lot of them, it's the, maybe it's the generation. Um, a lot of entrepreneurs exist in our student student body. Um, they have an interest of, you know, not only taking courses in bio, uh, biochemistry and genetics, but entrepreneurship, hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So we're, we're actually developing um some courses around that uh, in fact we we also offer an online version of the icor program eight week hmm. program is actually a course that our students um uh, are required for our masters in biotechnology students um but that's uh that's that's shown a lot of interest um m- many of our students are extremely interested in uh advancing health equity and health justice in particular um so much so we we were beginning to reshape our strategic plan, focus not only on health equity but health justice. Mm. Um, so addressing uh, equity in the workplace, uh, but justice and health policies. Mm. Um, yeah. So <laughs> we're we're very busy.
0: Very no, very interesting time on that front too. Just the the focus or you know importance of Um, our next generation's energy around entrepreneurship, you know, and trying to kind of create and manage their own destiny is kind of how I feel it when I see, you know, kind of the next generation start to move forward on their their endeavors. Are you noticing that um, as you move um, into the faculty ranks as well? Um, Is that pervasive with regards to this mindset around, you know, not only doing the science, but maybe beginning to see more of those faculty, younger faculty that are saying, Yeah, I I want to be entrepreneurial with this as well.
1: Right. You know, they they certainly have. Again, we've kind of began to stitch that into our strategic plan, uh, increasing some of the resources and infrastructure uh, around tech transfer. Because it's actually an expectation of faculty to contribute in some way. It may be in education uh, or training but in the discovery process, uh, and the translation of the discoveries mm-hmm. to address those uh, health disparities.
0: That's great. So it, yeah. it incentivizes uh, Absolutely. in many ways and, can, can, and, and includes them in the opportunity for that right. follow-on impact as well.
1: One, you know, one of the things that brought me to Morehouse School of Medicine, like coming out of uh, grad school or my postdoc, I could have gone into industry. Uh, or other academic positions across the country, but what what brought me there still exists. Where, um, in terms of the the revenue share uh, with a royalty that might come from a discovery, sixty um, percent of the royalty revenue will go to the inventors. Oh wow! Forty percent to the to the universe.
0: That's great because usually yeah. you know the breakdown you know that I've seen is more like a third, a third, a third. Exactly. Or, and maybe not always, always that. Not exactly. <laughs> yeah. exactly, exactly. That's, that's great. So there really is kind of monetary incentive to right. spend time in that area to right. think about translation. And I think that it, it all holds together because a lot of the grant funding that fuels a lot of that research um, oftentimes is coming from the NIH and it's te- yeah. taxpayer funded, right? Exactly. And so it's in the interest of the community to see that great research, you know, not only get published, but you know, ideally, the right science getting into a, you know, a company and a patient and yeah. solving important problems downstream. So it's it's interesting though to alignment of incentive. On one hand, you can't say we want to do all this stuff, but then you're not putting your money where your right. mouth is, right. or you're making it really hard to start a company around your idea. And yeah. I think historically, universities um, have have. Uh, had a different view toward, uh, translation and entrepreneurship. That's, that's changed more recently. But, you know, there was, uh, in, in, in my experience, you know, you go back 10, 15 years, um, living in a little bit of a different world. There was a little bit more of a, um, not as much attention and excitement around people that wanted to leave the academy and go start a company around their idea. That's seems to be changing. Yeah. Dramatically. It's, it's
1: changing more and more. A lot of my students, You know, they're they're trained in, again, precision medicine. So um, I have quite a handful at Genentech and a number of them at Janssen, Novartis, and they're all, uh, you know, that entrepreneurial bug as well.
0: That's pretty cool. I have one
1: one of my students is a tech transfer officer up at NYU. Very proud of her. Yeah. Tariana Stewart. Um, Yeah, so it's been exciting.
0: Well, and reflecting on your journey, you know, what what are some of the things you're most um, excited about or proud of? You know, you just mentioned a few things right there. But, you know, from going to, you know, your your first experience in the lab in Lexington and then getting into and leveraging your math and science, you know, to develop that part of your brain to be coming in handy now and applying it to precision medicine. And then, you know, being a scientist, really a hardcore scientist with, you know, major impact in the fields that you've been involved in and and pushing the science forward uh, to present day, the things you're working on. What are, what are some of the things you're most uh, proud of? And maybe um, for others that want to walk in your shoes, any advice? Oh boy,
1: you know, we, um, we launched a, uh, started a study total, total cancer care protocol, a study, um, at at Grady, which is a a large safe net hospital here in Atlanta. Memorial Hospital, um, roughly 1,200 new analytic cancer cases every year. Um, where we, we launched a program to provide, to make at least the uh, next generation sequencing technology available to every patient that wanted it. Mm. Uh, so it's true precision medicine implementation. Um, so I guess this, and we started this right before the pandemic. Mm unfortunately. So after surviving that, we actually uh even had to deal with floods. Not not not, not, not to mention the, the, the pandemic and uh patients not coming in for therapy, right. not being able to be diagnosed. Um you know alleviating those fears. You know, we, we actually saw accrual rates exceeding ninety percent, uh which was unheard of and you know we, we have over 2,000 participants thus far where we've been able to provide uh, uh, medical reports that could help inform their cancer care uh, and also identify clinical trials they could participate in. So I'm, I'm very proud of those accomplishments in, in the research team like uh, like Patricia Horn, Eddie Stanley, Roland Matthews, some physician champions that really made that possible because those resources simply were not available at a Morehouse School of Medicine or at a Grady Health System, this Community uh, Indigent Care Hospital, you know, where precision medicine was not the reality, but it's becoming the standard of care. And I'm hoping to do that more, not only in the oncology space, but other uh, therapeutic areas where we're having to uh, make make that happen. I'm also very proud of what we managed to build at Morehouse School of Medicine over the years. Gosh, I remember our, our president, Valerie Montgomery Rice. She was brought on, oh, hired on maybe 2010 ish. And she told us all, listen, we're going to double the class size. We're
0: like, yeah.
1: Oh, my. But guess what? Um, over a decade later, it's quadrupled. You know, it's crazy. Thousand, yeah. yeah. So she was right. We yeah. were. Uh, she she had it right. Um, I'm very proud of that accomplishment. The um, The the online graduate programs, I was not a fan of and didn't really understand them uh, when we started this four years ago. Mm -hmm. I remember three or four students in our masters in biotech program to see it become number one in the country and literally hundreds of students train where we're bringing these uh, graduate education uh, wherever they may be. Mm -hmm. They're not all in Atlanta, Georgia. You can walk to school. I mean, they're, they're, they're living in Alabama, sure. and Mississippi, and yeah. all over the place. Yeah. So they, they can all make a contribution. So I'm, I'm very happy with uh, some of that as well. Um, and, then, and then, I guess, lastly, the, uh, some of the innovations and innovators at Morehouse School of Medicine. Despite limited resources, we've been able to make a difference, like the story with uh, Chinook and Novartis uh, Partnerships. Um, and, and 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 some more that are be coming down the pipe.
0: Yeah. yeah. No. Well, one,
1: one in particular is kind of funny. I I'm, I'm involved in a, a, a company. We we also do we we ideally we try to find uh, a third party that we can have a collaborative research and development agreement with, where they have skin in the game and we do too. Um, and this one was brought to us by a company called Devmar Manufacturing, led by a black woman from Nashville, Tennessee, that had a uh, janitorial supply company. But they thought, well, you know, we can make these things too, but we need some help. So they came to Morehouse School of Medicine. Um and again, we we've um at least 13 issued patents later, developed some liquid loading technology. So think um uh powdered Lysol hmm. that can kill anything on the on any disinfect, any 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 biohazard event. But also absorb it at the same time. So, saving, uh, hopefully, hopefully, it'll save countless of lives and other hazards associated with having to clean up that vent. Technology can also be used for fuel cleanup, oil, you know, so many things. So, um, you know, that's amazing. That came out of that
0: collaboration, too. It's just kind of an unconventional approach. Exactly. Getting to an outcome that's had major impact.
1: And and again, finding the value of a given technology. Yeah.
0: Can you share any, just as we kind of begin to wind down the conversation? You know, what what are uh, maybe some of the challenges you see for Atlanta as an ecosystem in in the life sciences, kind of writ large, and um, you know any uh, prognostications on you know best best ways to um, optimize, you know, and, and and work work together collaboratively with different institutions, you know, around the city. To be successful in kind of optimizing, right?
1: Well, actually, I think your your uh, your team at Porterell Innovations is, is Innovations is going to uh, have a major impact in the city. What's been lacking, you know, I've been in Atlanta at Morehouse School of Medicine, often for twenty years, and there has been a lack of a venture studio, a a, a place to incubate um, uh, discoveries, uh, finding. Venture funds to fund them. Uh, you know, we so we need accelerators, uh, incubators like uh, the ones you're leading here in Atlanta to really make a difference and make it make this all happen. Because it 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 has not existed until relatively recently.
0: No, that's great. Well, that's that's heartening, and we certainly believe in Atlanta and the opportunity, and believe that you know in the next decade we'll see really some unique things that. Based on all the things you've described, we you know we really couldn't agree more. The opportunity um, to differentiate Atlanta and and connect it you know to the biotech grid and be successful in scaling an important ecosystem that has always had great talent, good innovation, but it's just kind of getting its game going right Absolutely. now. That's what we feel. So, well, it's been a true pleasure talking to you today, Dr. Lillard. I can't thank you enough for um, agreeing to come on the podcast. I know our listeners will be inspired. your story and your journey and the impact that you're making and um uh, thank you also to the audience for attending today's show (laughs) any questions from the audience before dr lillard leaves
2: hey this is kevin unfortunately the audience was off mic so you can't hear them so i'm going to be the retrospective microphone you're welcome first question James, how can portal innovation support some of the initiatives you talked about? You know, not just telling the story, but acting and engaging. Right. Yeah. From what what I learned, um,
1: some of the things you do, you know, an an innovation, I think, is 1% idea and 99% development, coaching, implementation. That 1% is is, is super valuable, but the 99% is absolutely required. So, you know, I need to spend more time with you guys to help to partner, uh, identify technologies you, you see an interest in and possibly help us take it to the next level. Mm-hmm. Um, haven't quite had that in my experience in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Georgia Research uh, Alliance does a, does a good job of providing some seed capital to kind of push things along, but the type of coaching and mentoring and the relationships, uh, you have are, you know, what's really needed. Cause I, you know, again, telling the story, uh, getting the word out that what, what we may have, that I might
2: not have access to. Question number two. So when we talk about something like precision medicine, I think it's typical to think of something like innovation in this linear model where you are seeing things progress in a linear way. In your experience with something like precision medicine, are you seeing exponential change? What is the rate of change?
1: Yes. Short answer is yes. You know, um, it's actually an exciting time and is accelerating. especially with the advent of AI and machine learning tools. Um, first, though, we're, you know, as we're developing some of the training sets that will inform those systems, it's really going to take off. Even, you know, even with um some of the small cohort of samples that I just talked about that we've been collecting and analyzing at Grady, mm-hmm. um, You know, we, we identified, uh, again, an endotype of, of a multiple myeloma that has has possible uh, FDA approved drug, tar- uh, drug available that could treat that population. Mm-hmm. And you're gonna find more and more of that uh, that can benefit of things that might be technology, therapies, devices that might be on the shelf mm-hmm. that will going to be able to accelerate the use of. So, yeah, acceleration is the right word.
2: It must be pretty crazy how it looked when you started your career compared to how it looks now. Yeah, You know, if you think about it, the,
1: you know, the Janome was what, completed 2003. Yeah. And look at it now. And then we're still filling in the gaps like we talked about. Um, and again, once that happens, like what? What the hell are those thousand genes doing? They've been there all this time. What those gaps in the in the genome that we didn't know?
0: Yeah, it's so exciting. Well, I remember when the mapping of the genome happened, kind of in that you know two thousand two thousand three timeframe, and that was kind of the dot com you know boom and bust. Yep. And the you know genome was deciphered, you know, and uh, published. And there was this massive expectation that, you know, overnight, we were going to be able to take that genomic information and be in the age of precision medicine right away. And of course, that didn't play out in the time frame that, you know, Wall Street was thinking that it could play out. Yeah. But the reality is, look at it today, just like you said. I mean, it really has played out the way everybody envisioned it. Yeah, but just it's just taken more time 20 to get years to a point. Thing, yeah. And it's still developing. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah, still yeah, developing. Yeah. 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 So.
2: Talk about the talent pipeline in the Atlanta ecosystem. Can both of you speak to what you are seeing in the ecosystem and how you are connecting startups with some of the incredible talent that's coming out of schools like Morehouse? Yeah,
1: well, you know, I can speak for uh, certainly Big Pharma in particular. Uh, it seems like every month we have uh, career fairs. We can do it virtually now, and they, there's, a, there's a keen interest of uh, uh, for students in the different programs we've cre- created. Um, also, you know, what's, what's interesting about, about Morehouse School of Medicine, kind of the, the focus on health equity is in the D, in our DNA, yeah. and our students have been immersed in it, and they don't even realize that they're experts. Right, right. But industry does, and they're, yeah. and they're coming to Morehouse for yeah. For
0: talent experts right at the right time. Yep. Yeah.
1: Right. Perfect
0: talent. Yeah. And broadly we're observing the same, you know, not only, you know, in addition to Morehouse, I would say, you know, the there are many, you know, groups that have fostered the support of you know programs within the universities to try to both attract, you know, innovative faculty and students into the ecosystem and then nurture them as they grow forward. You know, programs like like you mentioned GRA have been a you know a, an early funder of a lot of these ideas and activities. Um, And then you have, you know, Biolocity that's I think between Georgia Tech and Emory. Um, There are some initial funding sources available that, you know, are making it um, that universities are able to kind of push their idea a little bit further down the pathway to become more investable by the marketplace. Um, Again, our observations are, you know, when we look at, um, we've, we've developed a tool called Stargaze, which is using machine learning um, to look at all the published literature that's uh, available, uh, all the patents that have been filed around the country and r- around the world, who's doing the patents, what field of research are they working on. And so we're able to we use some uh, expertise some, from some computational biologists to almost use uh, the, the concept of going from mapping from a, a genotype to a phenotype. We're doing the same approach, but looking at, Predicting innovation and where innovation may come from, like who is the next James Lillard, who's the next Bob Langer, who's the next John Rogers, in a given ecosystem, so that we can optimize precision? Yeah. <laughs> its precision, its precision identification, so we can optimize where to focus, spend time, and nurture. Um, and you know there are many, you know, uh, faculty and and young faculty that don't yet have a brand yet, but have a lot of promise that I think will both start companies and we're hearing from their postdocs who want to be the first employee in those, those companies, which can often be the the case, you know, to, to get things up and going. So there's no shortage of, I think, great talent, particularly on the scientific side of things. Um, I think the, the, uh, what we think will happen over time too is that the more the ecosystem becomes de-risk, the more you know people like you will want to stay. People that are experienced at you know going beyond the innovation and starting a company and developing a technology. The 99% work that you said has to happen. So I think that piece of the talent pool is maybe less identified yet. But I think if what we found in Chicago is true here in Atlanta, there are a lot more talented people with those types of skills too. But they happen to be commuting to Boston to work in a biotech yep. company or whatever. They start to come out of the woodworks. Once you start to have like a place and a uh, and an energy, we hope portal can be one piece of the puzzle in that regard where you're convening and seeing and you're de-risking. And we've definitely seen that to be the case. So there are, are now talented CEOs that are coming into portal companies in Chicago that never would have looked at a Chicago op- opportunity because it was not kind of of the caliber that they could be doing in other parts of the country. So I think that's it does take time, you know, so I think there is good momentum, but I think we're at the early stage of starting to see um, the beginnings of more of that talent being cultivated. But I think the universities are working very hard to, you know, train Like you said, I mean, you've got an entrepreneurship program, so like the, the talent coming out even at the early stages um, are becoming, you know, more and more qualified to populate the biotech company. I mean, Georgia State's got good stuff going on, as we mentioned. Emory, and between Emory and Georgia Tech, you've got the, the Coulter you know, program. And I think those, those kinds of programs are all blending together to create a unique talent pool that, like you said, pharma will want to participate in. Or if it's a startup that pharma will want to collaborate with.
2: Do you have any advice for students when they're navigating both biotechnology and business? Because there are different opportunities out there. Schools provide certain types of opportunities, but what they can experience within school is limited. So they have to go out and experience industry with internships and other opportunities. Is there any gap that you see when students are navigating learning opportunities? And do you have any advice for those students to maybe get that landscape better?
1: Yeah, You know, we, I think probably a lot of schools uh, try to address that um, informally. You know, there's there's always someone like, like me that a student will come and talk to about opportunities in industry and entrepreneurship. But we've, we've actually uh, have a, a career connection and career strategy office at Morehouse School of Medicine that's doing a much better job and making my life easier by coordinating some of those efforts and bringing in outside speakers to talk about different things. and uh, Speakers that might be entrepreneurs, it may be from industry. Uh, Etc. So, I think we need to be you know more formal approaches, making it part of the curriculum. Um, I think that's something we need to work for, work towards.
0: Yeah, and then outside of the university um, portal, again, it's in our interest to see talented you know individuals and in, and provide support. Um, so we've run some pretty deliberate programs around career nights, for example, where we're trying to gather the community so that people can kind of see who's there. And like you said, maybe have a panel of people that have, have been in industry and have been working in a given area or in a startup. Um, and you know, w- w- as we, uh, have done you know, even before the lab is open, try to run some regular programs so we can convene so that people just have a, a sense of connecting the dots. So so much in the beginning is just connecting dots that are here that not everybody is fully aware of. Like even who's here and what's going on. First, getting a lay of the land. Um, the Portal is trying to be involved in um, stimulating that those types of connections, and that will accelerate when we have our lab up and running because we'll have a dedicated space where, you know, we, we hope that that type of thing will happen all the time. That's certainly what we've seen in Chicago. So we run STEM programs all the way down into the, into the high school because we're interested in, you know, opening up access to more diverse populations. And exposure is one, one of the favorite things. And I know in my journey of how I've learned is just exposure and practice and experience. And so um, it really we are, is,
1: it's a new classroom.
0: Yeah, it is, and so we're very right. open to and and have uh, and will will do uh, frequently um, o- open up so that there are uh, ways that people can you know see what's going on in in a startup in in biotech using using our convening power as we ha- open the lab. Well, thanks a lot, everybody. Thanks for joining us today. It was another great episode. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with our guest today, and were inspired the way I was. Looking forward to reconvening again in two weeks. Please visit our website at Labrats to Unicorns.com. We welcome any of your comments, feedback, ideas. If you want me to ask certain questions of guests or you have ideas of people that we should be interviewing, that is all goodbye.